collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Welcome to another episode of Collective Power. I'm excited to have with us today, Michael O'Brien. Hi, Michael. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I'm really, really good. You and I have been kind of circling around each other, around like kind of trauma work and arts and social justice for a few years now. It's really great to like, just really have some time to be with you and be in a conversation. So thank you for saying yes to this today. Well, thank you for the invitation, it means a lot. Honestly. Yeah. We're looking at juvenile justice this month, although it kind of became a little bit of a stretch of two months. And the question I always ask people first is tell us a little bit, something about your journey, like a story about your life or your journey that has us understand why what's important to you is important to you. Yeah. Hmm. So, you know, I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut. I'm not a Philadelphian by birth. Came here at 18 and I, it's interesting because by, yeah, I'm 35, by my next birthday, I will literally have spent half of my life in Philadelphia, which is wild. A lot of time. But the first 18 years of my life, I spent in Hartford, Connecticut and partly in West Hartford, Connecticut. And my upbringing in Connecticut was, was its own interesting series of like lessons in humanitarianism, lessons in art making, and lessons in understanding that people are born and just start responding to whatever they inherited. I think sometimes we make it more complicated than that as people, and it's actually a bit simpler than we probably want to really admit, that literally people come out of the womb and are literally responding to whatever is around them. And they don't have the choice of what's around them when they come out the womb. They are literally just responding to whatever is present and showing up people, places, things, experiences. And so I say that because my mother was a survivor of foster care. Is, she's not dead, I said Rosa. She is a survivor of foster care. And she had to respond to the world that she inherited, that was just given to her. And likewise, we did as her children. I'm her youngest of three boys. And, you know, it's, you know, this is what drew me to a lot of work with youth who have been impacted by the foster care system, because I know firsthand what it's like to grow up as the child of someone who grew up in a system that just promoted more disconnection and having to maneuver through life 
that way. You know, I lucked out. My mother had me, she was older. She was still in her 20s, but she was older. She had my brothers when she was in her late teens, right? So, like, they just had a different mom. She was, she was still growing, still figuring it out. So, you know, that's one bit of a story that shapes a lot of, like, how I see the world, why I am, why I am the person I am today, you know, and, and why I care about this idea of us reimagining our humanity and the lens uh, through which we see that humanity so that more people can partake of it because maybe then we do <laughs> some kinder things. Is there a story or an example that you could bring to like have that really come to life for us? Yeah, when I was a teenager, um, when I was in eighth grade, I saw this theater uh, performance troupe called Looking in Theater. They came to my school. It was a group of probably about eight or nine, maybe even a little less, maybe like seven or nine teenagers between 14 and 18 who did these series of skits that were all about social issues and, and challenges that teenagers face. And so they did seven to eight of these skits. No skit went over like two to three minutes. They did about seven or eight of those, then did a talk back in character with us. So the audience got to ask questions of characters. And then they did another, you know, six or seven scenes. They did another talk back in character. And then they finally broke character and did a final talk back as themselves. And I mean, issues, everything from interracial dating, racism, having a parent who's suffering from alcoholism or some form of addiction, domestic abuse in a teenage relationship, you name it. There was a party scene right, where you were at like a house party with no parents, you just watched everything around. Date rape. I mean, like there's so many things that bulimia, I mean, just all kinds of stuff that teenagers face. And we, as an audience, responded almost like the Jerry Springer show. You know, is that, oh, 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 it's just wild and crazy stuff. But people ask really poignant questions. And so by the end, I was just kind of like, eh, that was cool, I guess. I mean, I liked it, but like, that was just dramatic and a lot of Jerry Springer and it's cool, it's fine, whatever. But the next two days, so many kids, I watched so many kids go to guidance and talk to guidance counselors about issues that they were facing. And even me, I was just in my head thinking about all kinds of stuff that I would not have thought about on my own. And I was just like, whoa, 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 how, what just happened? And I became obsessed. I was like, I have to do that. That, I, that was the moment I was like, wow, art, not, can, not only can art change lives, but young people making art can change somebody's life. That blew my mind. And I saw like, oh my God, they reflected our humanity back at us and gave us space, permission, liberty, language to like talk about things and see things and process things in ways that we couldn't or didn't know how to or wanted to, but couldn't find the escape. And so I went and auditioned for that and did that for four years because I was like, ah, I'm doing that. <laughs> I want to do that. But I think that's one example. 
it, was there an aspect of your humanity that they gave you permission to see? Yeah, so much of it. I think I saw, so there's things you see, but you don't know how to name, or things you see that you run from. And so I think one of the things I got at that age was like, Michael, you got to deal with your sexuality. Like, you're going to have to, like, you're going to figure that, figure that out. And, and it ended up being that not only did I get a space to deal with it, but I also found through being in that program and then going to the performing arts high school in my local area in Hartford, like I found a space for some affirmation there while I was struggling with the identity piece and trying to figure it out. It was a lot to work through. Yeah. For a long time. <laughs> it sounds like you didn't see this, but it's kind of like what I'm hearing is that it also had you, you and your peers kind of wake up to the fact that life is actually complex and it's not as black and white Absolutely. and there's stuff to work out. And that in our teenager context, it looks one way and in our adult context, it works another way. Right. But life can be sticky and tricky and messy and, it kind of sounds like it gave you permission and art always bring, does that, right? Like art reflects the complexity of life and goes beyond the black and whites and art is so good at delivering the gray. So it's like, oh, there's something to this. It's not as straightforward and it may, as it may look. It sounds like that. I don't know if I'm putting words into your mouth or if that sounds fair. I think that's highly accurate, right? You're, we're taught to think in binaries. We're taught to think you know, this or that. Mm -hmm. and it's like sometimes it's this and that, or sometimes it's this and that and that over there, right? Or, and other times it's like none of it, right? <laughs> you got to actually yeah. get a new thing. Yeah. But life has that much nuance and is complex and humans are complex and it's fine to be complex. Yeah. That's your right to be complex. You don't have to be a mold. You don't have to be a this or a that, right? So I think that was something... Yeah, that program taught me, and being at that performing arts high school taught me, my friendships taught me. And so tell us a little bit more, like, what you do, why you said yes to this invite, kind of how do you relate to the juvenile justice world, kind of. Sure. So yeah. my life is in three different areas that are much more like Venn diagrams, right, intersecting circles than three separate verticals. So first, I'm at the Village of Arts and Humanities in North Philadelphia. It's mm -hmm. an arts and culture nonprofit that also is in uh, the space of community economic development. So I run all of their uh, programs for youth and young adults. So traditionally down to nine, up to age 26 now. All of the programs for 14 to 26 year olds are pre-employment and pre-apprenticeship based. That means young people are getting bi-weekly pay they're learning how to be in simulated work environments and experiences mm. through a creative agency, creative economy lens. So mm -hmm. they're taking classes in media and art and design, sometimes in tech, mm. depending on course or the instructor I can get at the time. And then each class is often connected to a client. And so young people have a real life deliverable sometimes multiple clients, depending on the course. Some, they have real life deliverables that are going into the real world to do a real thing. And mm -hmm. if they don't do well on that thing, you know, someone is impacted, right? So there's, the stakes are real, right? But we have 
design the program in a way where the stakes aren't so high that a young person doesn't feel like they have the right to make a mistake or the right to human error. Because those mm -hmm. are just two rights that we think about as being part and parcel to humanity, but particularly to childhood. And we know a lot of the young people that we work with have had their childhoods robbed from them very, very, very early. Robbed is the, in quotes, right? But like life has, again, we're all coming up the woman responding and life has taken that away from them, unfortunately. And so we see it as our job to be restored, to provide that space back where it's not a zero sum mm -hmm. game. The other areas of my life. So the second area, I'm a fellow at a space called the Lindy Institute for Urban Innovation. It's a think tank out of Drexel University. Focuses really on metro economies, urbanism, city building. So metro economies are economies of cities, city building, urbanism, all that mm -hmm. stuff. And I like to phrase my work as looking at like the science of humanity as it relates to city building, right? What is the, what is the humanity of the city, right? And how does that exist? How is it operationalized? Because we have operationalized dehumanization across the board, right? That is America's like, thing in the West thing. Yeah, we've perfected that. Yeah, and so in this new era where we're trying to figure out, you know, new for some, not new for many of us, like you and myself, we've been thinking about these things for a while. How do you operationalize a shared sense of humanity that honors people as assets, to begin with and honors the nuance of their identities and experiences that have often also been the seat of hyper marginalization um, and ostracization the whole nine. So I use developmental science lenses, I use trauma theory, I look at chronic stressors and allostatic load, but I look at complexity theory and systems theory and you know there's a number of things we throw it in the bucket and we're trying to make sense of this complex beast that is the modern city with in Philly, it's 1.5 almost, right? Million people, almost 1.6 million. In other cities, it can be even more. So cities are complex. And I like to specifically, my work right now is looking at future of work, economic development, but through the lens of community wealth building. And what does it mean to have a transitory economy, a transitioning economy that's happening upon us when we're trying to also figure out equity and justice and blah, blah, blah. How do you frame that out? What are the knowledge frameworks you need? What are the practice-based frameworks you need to continue to iterate and answer questions around our humanity that we've never had to answer? We've never had to solve for racism fully. We've never had to solve for sexism fully. We've never had to solve for classism fully. So we've got to contend with this, but everybody's writing letters about like, Black Lives Matter. It's like, what? when did you do that work? You never did that work. So. That's a lot of my work. The third area, I take the research and practice-based stuff and go work with companies to help them figure out their lives. So how does that connect to juvenile justice? Well, a lot of people commit crimes because they ain't got no money, <laughs> right? And you know, my training and my history of how I even came to this place, I started off at the intersections of art, mental health, and public health. And I was working in family homeless shelters. And the shelter system is a collision of every failure that we have in the, probably every other system. So my role as youth services coordinator, I ran after school arts programming for young people between the ages of five and 18 that lived on site. And then I also was their the case manager for youth. And that was an iterative thing because at first I wasn't a case manager. I didn't know anything about case management. I didn't go to school for social work, my undergrads in music. 
but they trained me in the sanctuary model. And we worked with Joe Federero, who was one of the co-creators of the sanctuary model to outfit the model to who we were as an institution. Cause this was before, this was back in 07, before the sanctuary Institute had all the pretty books and the three year process fully lined out and everything the way that they do now. And, and so it was entrepreneurial. <laughs> I mean, the way we had to take the model and adapt it. And all that being said, you know, my case management role was an iterative thing that just kind of happened because there was no one to fully focus on the young people with the attention, care, and necessity that it demanded. And our young people, you know, they were just in the throes of so many systems. And that's how I got acquainted with places like the Juvenile Law Center and Education Law Center, because there were also really egregious things happening that were just against the law. And I didn't know it were against the law, but my spidey senses would go off and be like, something don't sound right, doesn't feel right. Let me just go dig a little more. I would go to trainings, I'd find trainings, and I'd go to them specifically around the rights of young people, rights of youth in care, whatever. And then I'm learning, I'm like, oh, oh, that was illegal, okay. And then I made friends at those places. They were like, here's my card, here's what you say, throw my card down, and I bet you they'll change their tune. And I watched that happen a lot, a lot being at the intersections of so many systems because you're trying to solve for the experience of homelessness. There are so many on-ramps to that. But some of the biggest ones, foster care, right, which also includes residential treatment facilities and placements. And then you start getting all into the world of juvenile justice because in Philadelphia, the juvenile justice department is housed within the Department of Human Services. We have a lot of young people who are like, I think the term is codependents, right? Or they have co-occurring status of both Crossover youth, yeah. Yeah. Crossover your youth. Yeah, being both on the end of the justice system and the, or the justice side of DHS and the foster care side of DHS. So I just got exposed to a lot and just, even to this day, I just try to show up as best I can with the resources I have to support and help. So I have relationships with the Defenders Association, and their entire children and youth division. I've got relationships at the DA's office and their juvenile division. And I've got relationships at just some alternative schools. Like I just try, and the shelter system still, I just try to be where I can be with the resources that I have and some of the skill sets that I have. So I'd like to just take a step back and reformulate a little bit for a listener that may not know kind of all of some of the lingo you're using around sanctuary model, okay? So this is kind of what I understand inside of what you're shared. And if I get anything wrong, just tell me, right? Right. So the sanctuary model, which was founded by um, Sandy Bloom and Ferrero that you were saying, right? Observed that oftentimes in institutions, when a person is traumatized, the actual, all, the whole group, Sandy wrote an amazing article on how social systems move to repeat trauma. The whole group actually moves to repeat the trauma of that human being. And so one of the things, it's like, you know, a person has an experience of being scapegoated every time they enter a group, the group like kind of moves in, to scapegoat them again. And part of it, it happens because the wound's always trying to re-trigger itself to heal, right? But when it doesn't get healed, it just gets repeated over and over again. So, and the sanctuary model works specifically with organizations and agencies who do this three-year curriculum, who are certified in sanctuary model, to block that, 
so to basically like to stop what's called trauma reenactment. So to stop the group, the agency, the organization from repeating the trauma and instead be able to transform it by unpacking how that person's trauma is triggering other people's trauma because basically it becomes a trained reaction. And so what I hear you saying is that you worked in an organization, in particular a shelter, that worked around the sanctuary model before it was more codified, as they were still kind of learning some of the kinks of their own process, their own work. And so it was an organization that was looking at itself to pay attention to where trauma was getting triggered and intentional about interrupting it. And yet in the face of that commitment, you still had the systems perspective that had you see how all the systems connected oftentimes undermined the youth and trampled on their rights in ways that got response for you. And then you kind of found words for it a little bit later. Yeah. Is that I, fair? That's fair. I think the other nuance to point out with the sanctuary model is that so yeah, there is this thing around like emotional contagion and trauma reenactment, but there's also just the nature of systems because systems are powered and ideated or like thought of and created by human beings and then ran by them. And just because you're in service to people does not automatically mean that you don't have any of your own traumas, that you don't have any of your own chronic stressors or life stressors at any given moment. The way that systems work, we call it parallel process, right? That systems can mirror the same kinds of reorganizations that happen at the bodily and physiological and psychological level for individual and social uh, and moral even levels for an individual systems can do the exact same thing and how they operate as well right so sanctuary is really about shifting the operating system by which a, any system a bodily you know individual system or organizational system or a series of organizational systems working together, like it's switching the operating, the way that they operate, right? Then the operating, go back to the computer thing, operating system. It's really switching that whole thing to be more human centered, to understand some of the nuances of our development, to put in conditions of intentionality around like shared learning, right? Like there's a commitment to shared learning, it's a commitment to emotional intelligence and a commitment to ideas like growth and change in the model, you're really changing how humans are oriented to one another, oriented to systems, how systems are oriented to the people who are in them, using them, powering them, employed by them, et cetera, to try to get humanity up to the next level of its own existence. I love this because, so one of the purposes of collective power and having these individual like perspectives, right, that then we weave all together is because each person has an angle on a story, right? And each person has an angle on how the system works. So what I'm hearing in this conversation is that not only do you have kind of the lived experience, right, as someone whose mom was a foster care survivor, but you also have, and you have the perspective of art and how art can transform trauma and wake us up you also have this really unique perspective of working in a system and in an agency that was trying to change its operating system and how tricky that is, because that's not an easy task, right? I wish we could just format the hard drive and start over the way we do with our computers. It's actually a really tricky thing to do when you have a group of humans together, because some want to change the operating system, some don't, some sabotage the changing of the operate, right? There's all this stuff that happens. So, that's kind of like part of the angle of what you're bringing today. So 
thank you for that because I, I think part of what I why I was asking all these questions is so that we can understand where you're coming from in your in your perspective and your analysis because everyone has a different angle. So I'm curious, given the angle you have on the juvenile justice system, what do you think are the biggest misperceptions people have? One that youth are locked up for violent crimes and really heinous activity. It, the data does not support that at all. I think it's actually at 70% of all youth placements are for nonviolent technical offenses. Give us an example of what a nonviolent technical sure, yeah. offense is. So 15, let's say you stole, you were in a, you didn't even steal the car, you were in a stolen car, you got caught. If you're on probation, and you smoke weed, if you're on probation and you skip school, if you're on probation and you're out too late, that's enough to get you sent to a residential treatment facility, a group home, secure placement. We've got all these cute terms for jail, or prison rather. But yeah, I mean, there are offenses like that. There are things that teenagers are gonna do because they're adolescents, they're teenagers. Those are the kind of technical offenses that get a lot of young people locked up. It is not violence. A naive question. Why did you make the distinction between jail and prison? Oh, so if I'm not mistaken, jail is the holding place prior to sentencing and prison is where you go once you're sentenced. So some people do get stuck in jail for a really long period of time, which is ridiculous. You do have a right to a speedy trial, but that doesn't really happen <laughs> the way that it should. Philadelphia has been working on that and the numbers are trending much better than they used to be. So I will, you know, I give credit where it's due, but as a nation, we're still, we gotta figure that part out. Any other misperceptions? That jail is doing the work of rehabilitation or prison, jail slash prison is doing the work of rehabilitation. It's not, it's not. The data's there, it's definitely not. I think some of the other misconceptions, you know, some are in the moral space that young people just want to commit crime because committing crime is the cool thing to do. Remember, we come out the womb and then we're responding. And not only are we responding to what's around us and what we're inheriting, we're also being shaped by those things. And so I always tell people, it's very easy to say someone's stealing. It's very difficult to actually get into the nuance of why someone is taking something that might not belong to them or why they might not call it stealing. And that to me is the crux of the issue in the juvenile justice system. We are looking at your behavior and labeling it a thing, but we're not building relationship enough with you to understand how your decision process even got you there, how life constraints even got you there. Could you give an example of that? Sure, there was a young person who came to the Red Shield family residence, that's the family home and shelter I used to work at. His family came in off the street through intake, through emergency intake. And this young man had been lining his pockets with all these graham crackers. It was evening snack. He didn't give out graham crackers, literally two in a pack, the little rectangle ones or square ones. And I got a phone call to come down. I came down and the front desk guy, is, he's an older guy. He's up and out. This boy is in there stealing graham crackers. And I'm like, what? I mean, he's going off. And I'm just like, Bro, there are two graham crackers in a pack. It's actually one whole little rectangular graham cracker. Like, I don't, okay, let's figure, I don't think we gotta be this upset, right? I was kind to him about it. I didn't say it like this, but my, 
for the purposes of being fast. What I said basically was like, well, I don't know why you need to be this upset. Plus, who is doing this? And he points to this like seven year old little kid, and I was like, I'm not gonna go over there and be like, you're stealing. Like, just relax. I'll go talk to him. But like, I'm, I just wanna be clear on what you're gonna see because I also don't want you to come out and start hollering at him while I'm talking to him because you don't think I'm, I'm not delivering justice for the Grand Gangers. So I go out, talk to this young man. You know, I start with just introducing myself, asking him how long he's been here asking him if he knew anything about the third floor where we have games and stuff for kids and after school programs. And then I just start talking to him about like the snack, what it's like. I like graham crackers a lot. Anybody that knows me knows honey Teddy Grahams are like my thing. So I'm talking about graham crackers. And then I point out to him that I noticed he has a bunch. And I was like, you know, if you're ever hungry, really come and talk to us and we'll help you out. Like we don't, our goal is no one's hungry. And so, we typically only give two snacks a day, but you know, I'd already introduced myself as Mr. Mike. I work with the kids, blah, blah, blah. I was like, I'm notorious for always giving out extra snacks. And I have snacks in my room. So, so like, we can always get you extra snacks. Long story short, I get more information from this young man and just do dialoguing with him. And family had just come in off the street. Mother suffers from addiction. He's used to feeding his siblings. That was his thing. He wanted to be able to feed his siblings at night when they get hungry because they're used to nobody feeding them, right? Oh. Very few people stepping in to feed them. So was he taking something that didn't belong to him? Yes. Was he stealing? In his eyes, no, he's providing. He was providing for his siblings. And to him, that was his, the reason he was there, right? Like he saw it as an integral part of his responsibility, probably as a man and an older sibling. And he was parentified. And so once I got all that information, I went back to the front desk. I said, listen, I talked to him. He's not going to do that anymore. I told him, if he ever wants extra, just talk to me and keep him safer. And just in general, I talked to him about like, you know, when people see you take things that aren't theirs, even though you have a really good reason for it, People like to call the police. I just told them flat out. I wasn't even trying to sugarcoat it. Like, people like to call the police. And they don't want to hear your excuse or your reasoning. Like, they're just, people are, can be kind of mean, right? I know you're doing a good thing, but you also got to think about other people too and like how we balance that. And so here, we can balance that by just asking us and we'll take care of that for you. Always ask me, always get through to me, whatever. But I told the guy, you know, what happened and the information and blah, blah, blah. And by then, he was still just like, but he shouldn't be stealing. And I'm just like, I got you. I got you. <laughs> I heard. I hear you, right? But that's what I mean by, like, if you dig into the nuance of the story, you get so much more information out. And I have a better chance of correcting his behavior in the context of how we just talked to each other and the relationship and trust we were building with each other than I did coming in going, I know you took them grand crackers, little boy. Take them out your pocket. Now I let him keep all the graham crackers because it's not that serious. Boxes of those things. And sometimes people allow principle to trump relationship building. Say more about that. The principle, you should not be stealing. The reality, we have boxes of those damn graham crackers. It really didn't matter that he took them. This was an ethical issue, particularly with this one guy's sense of moral and ethics. And I guess the young person, because again, he should not be stealing, 
but he's also like you also got to question the reasoning the maturation of that young person's mind what experiences might have shaped all that that's why i got into the middle of it all and i was just like this isn't as cut forward and straight as we are trying to make it it's not as black and white and so it was important to me that the principle of thou shalt not steal and it's wrong to steal did not trump fact that this was a young developing mind and body who's literally experiencing homelessness just came in off the street for intake and maybe what he just needs is the space to be a human and given his life he doesn't actually have the experience of being able to trust that going to an adult to ask for additional food will result in a positive result so making it by in the best way he can is what has worked for him and what has worked for his siblings right like oftentimes I like to say that we treat trauma and poverty, or in this case, like stealing or like whatever the umbrella term, I don't want to choose anyone because they're all nasty, but whatever the deviating from the norm is, right? Like as if it's an irrational choice. But for a kid who's lived on the street, who has siblings that can go hungry, who sees it as his responsibility to feed them, and knows he cannot trust adults to tend to him, that's a rational choice. To me, like that's one of the things that drives me most crazy about our systems, is that our systems seem to be built as if the actions people take are irrational, just because, you know, from the comfort of my middle-class white home, they're not norm. Right. Right? So I'm curious, like, where do we have power? Like, what is the collective power that we have? What is it that you would recommend in terms of how people can, like, move beyond the state of where things are and contribute to clearly what is a different world that you're committed to and that you're working towards? Um, Kimberly, we got to get involved with some organizing. People got to get involved with some of the organizing efforts, right? It's complicated here versus a lot of other places because, again, our juvenile justice system is within the Department of Human Services, which gives them a lot of power in the situation, right? And so people need to educate themselves on how our system actually works. And there's popular like political education that is taking place in this as well. So I would say that's one piece is like, get educated on how this works. I think the other thing is be thoughtful about how you interact with young people. Because the way we talk about young people, no wonder, no wonder some of them go off and do certain things. We really treat them like they're criminals already, prior to them even doing the thing. And some of that's racism, because a lot of these young people are black and brown. We've all been socialized, black and brown people included, to see young and black and brown people as threats, potential criminals. You fill in the rest of the blanks, right? And so we can't address young people in the fullness of their potential with those labels stuck all over them. So really it's about humanizing the gaze, your gaze, when you look at young people. And there's interesting research about how black young boys get aged, you know, four and a half years older than their white male counterparts. It's really scary and fascinating research done with white college freshmen women and white police officers, showing them pictures of white young men and black young men, varying ages between like, I don't remember what the lowest age was, but up to the age of 18 and asking them, you know, how old people were. 
on average, black boys were aged 4.5 years older than they really were. So people were looking at 11-year-olds and calling them 15, 15 and a half, 16 years old. I can see you, right? Because I can see that, like, there's a hurt and a concern that's transpiring on your face right now. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Like, could you break it down? Like, why is that dangerous? Yeah, because power is typically vested in these spaces and systems with middle-class white people on up. And then the black and brown people who have often broken class, who then are also accepted into those spaces and systems, and then often have to conform to the norms, the cultural norms of how these systems operate, see young people, frame them out, and what's possible or not possible in their restitution and rehabilitation, whatever language people want to use. That, and that's what bothers me the most, right, is that we don't have the right systemic design and inputs to really care about the humanity of the young people that have to go through it. And when you have to doll out discipline policies and you're looking at a 12 year old as if they are 16 or 17, you're also now using your reasoning of what you think a 16 or 17 year old should be liable for in terms of ethics and responsibility and maturity and, and that's wild. Yes. So we're actually holding people accountable or youth accountable to a standard that's beyond their reach. Yeah. It's appropriate. It's yeah. developmentally inappropriate. Yes. Scientifically inappropriate. Yeah. Other ways that you can see people to get involved? You know, the other thing we got to think about is prevention, not just intervention. Like, how do we keep young people from even ending up in a trajectory that puts them in harm's way like that. And there are a number of ways to prevent things, but like, I know people say they're scared of young people. I respect that. I do, I respect that. I know, I mean like playing devil's advocate on myself, I have heard stories about how older people try to help and get beat up. Like, or let me rephrase that, they try to intervene in a moment or something could be going wrong and they're trying to help the young person see like, don't do that, you can do something better for yourself, that'll get you in trouble. And then they ended up getting beat up or fighting the young kid because the young kid tries to fight them, right? That happens, but I think we make the exceptions the rule and we act like that's all the, every time you could try to do a thing, right? So intervention is when you're trying to inject yourself into a thing that's already happening Prevention is how do we keep it from happening? Every interaction with a young person doesn't have to be framed as an intervention. It can be a prevention that also isn't framed as like, I'm doing this to help keep you off drugs. I'm doing this to help keep you out of jail. Cause nobody wants to hear that either. Prevention can also look like just spending quality time with people, taking them out to places and spaces they've never seen or touched before. It's an investment in time an investment in affirming a young person's worth. Investing in affirming the right they have to bumble around in their identity if they want and figure it out over time. And having you as a resource to talk to and think through. A meal. I mean, like, I, I'm going on to some basics. Food, clothing, shelter, a loving arm, a listening ear, right? I mean, there are ways to show up for young people that can be intervention-based that an individual can do 
that a system might not be good at. And then the flip side is there are things that systems can do that an individual might not be able to do. Because young people also need access to income. They do need work. And like if I individually can't give you a job, well, there might be a system that's designed well to do that, right? So there are structural things that are definitely needed. But if we're talking interpersonal and like relational and people want to get involved, let's not wait to try to find the right or get involved with the young people who are around you now because they need that love and they're looking for it. They just don't even know how to ask. One of the things that really connects for me with what you're saying is the notion of eldering. And my friend Juanita Robertson says a lot that like a couple of generations have kind of abdicated the role of eldering and the difference between being an elder or being an adult or worse an adolescent adult is an elder is you know i will support you to discover what you want for yourself like i will support you to discover your journey your aspirations your mission your purpose as opposed to i'm just going to tell you what to do because i know better and you don't and I think we do a lot of the latter and not so much of the former. And so part of what I hear you're saying about prevention is actually that piece around, it's kind of like full circle what you went to your guidance counselor for. It's like, I'm struggling with this thing. Can I get a little bit of guidance? But it's not a do this or do that. It's a be there for me as I try to figure out me. And sometimes I think as adults, we assume that we know it all just because we're older. Yeah. While actually every life journey is a life to, to discovery. Like we all have to discover ourselves and we all have to discover which prices are we willing to pay for which benefits we're willing to live, right? And that's a journey of discovery no matter what. Absolutely. Well said. So how can people get in touch with you and do you have any last thoughts? people want to get in touch with me, my, the best way to do that is probably through email. You can email me at mike at villagearts.org, V-I-L-L-A-G-E-A-R-T-S.org. And any closing thoughts? Yeah, you know, I like to phrase up a comment that's I use in some of my workshops. And it's a question, it's a bit of a provocation, but it's a question. If we think about humanity as a fountain that you want to drink of, right? All the rights, responsibilities, gifts, traits, liberties, all the things you want to experience out of life that are your right because you're a human being. When you think about humanity as a fountain, do you make sure that other people have the right to drink of that fountain the way that you want to or can drink of that fountain? Are you okay with other people that are not like you drinking of that fountain? Do you interrogate who even has access to that fountain? I think those are the kinds of things we got to think about in the 21st century. Thank you for your time, Michael. Oh, thank you. It was really a gift to have you and I'm looking forward to the next conversation with like all the powerhouse people we've had in the past couple months. Okay. Um, thank you for your commitment to young folk and your ability to like weave together all these different aspects of system and of humanity. Thank you so much. Thank you for making this space. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. Righty, take care. I look forward to our next sit down.
Me too. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.